Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, welcome to LifePoint this morning. I'm going to give you a special word of welcome. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we are thrilled to have you. would love the opportunity to get to know you a little bit more as well. This morning, LifePoint, we have the privilege, however, to welcome Dr. John Mark Yates uh, with us. Dr. Yates serves as Vice President of Student Services and Professor of Church History at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Spurgeon College in Kansas City. Uh, He earned his Ph.D. in church history from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He also holds degrees uh, from Southern Seminary, Oxford University, and Criswell College. Uh, He is a published author. However, Pastor Lane is most excited to welcome him uh, to us this morning. uh, As you will hear about uh, one of his passions, uh, that is Orphan Care Sunday, which is represented this Sunday as well. And so, uh, because he and his wife Angie are the parents uh, of four adopted children themselves, they speak uh, from experience here. He is a man who loves the Lord Jesus and is living out a faithful gospel witness in every area of his life. And Pastor Lane wanted me to uh, thank you directly again, Dr. Yates, for your public ministry and your influence to our church family today as you labor to cultivate uh, an impulse to labor for the orphans no more and to equip us to engage in this area. LifePoint, will you join me in thanking Dr. Yates for being here and welcome him as he comes to bring the word. Thank you guys. It is good to be with you this morning, and I am excited to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you would go ahead and open up to the book of James. The book of James. We're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, a a classic text uh, that talks about God's care for the orphan and, and why this matters. If you talk to anyone who has adopted or if you talk to anyone who has walked through the journey of adoption or foster care, you know that the story of adoption always starts in grief and loss. It's just where it begins. For my wife and I, that story started even before we were married as we watched uh, some families in our church struggle with the question of infertility. And as we were ministering on staff at a church there and and just helping them kind of think through those ideas, we realized, you know what, we need to begin to ask questions. And God, would you allow us to be those who would pursue adoption should infertility be something that you bring our way? So even before we were married, we, we believe that God had called us to adopt. And we'd even said, you know, given the need, given the, the, the issues that are in the culture around us, uh, Lord, even if you give us children biologically, we believe that you're still leading us to adopt. So that was something that we had made as a determination as a couple. And uh, what, what a calling. And we, we just thought, man, that's great. It was four and a half years later after struggling with infertility and the questions that come along with that, 
that we finally had the good news that we were pregnant. And we thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. God's starting to open this chapter of our uh, life. We're, we're about to walk through this only to lose the child at 13 weeks. My wife told me later that she had been praying to God to say, Lord, we know that you've called us to adopt. We just need to know, is it now or do you still want us to wait? So my wife, having to, ha- to go through surgery because of this loss in her pregnancy, she said when she woke up from her surgery, an overwhelming sense of peace came over her and she knew, God, you've just called us to adopt. A few months later, we were working with an adoption agency, and, and, and yet just a few months more, and we brought home our oldest daughter, Briley, who just this last week finished all of her credits for high school and graduated and uh, is getting ready to embark on the next phase of her life. Adoption is such an amazing experience. We're bringing those who are outside into a place of being inside our family. But the idea of grief and loss, which we often will focus that story on the adopting family, also exists on the part of the child. There's grief and loss from a separation between a God-ordained institution of that of family. A grief and loss of a, of a broken relationship that's not often always felt or understood until much later, but it's still there and it's still real. And yet God has placed in his word and in the text this idea of adoption, this idea of caring for orphans as something that God has very dear to his heart. Now, Some of this just has to do with the fact that God values every single life. God values every single life. You you might be in this room today and be thinking, you know, God doesn't value my life. He values your life. He values your life so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross for your sin so that you could be redeemed and have an eternity with him. That's how much God loves you individually as a person. He values every single life. When I was 14 years of age, my parents sent me on a plane ride. Uh, They wanted me to go to this homeschool conference thing, and uh, I had never really flown on my own, but here I go. And they loaded me on a plane going to Chicago, and uh, I ended up sitting next to that guy. And those of you who fly regularly might know what I'm talking about, the guy who never stops talking, right? Uh, Nowadays, it's pretty easy to tune that person out because you just pull out your earbuds and stick them in and it's a pretty clear signal, don't talk to me. A hundred years ago when I was 14, that was not the case. You didn't have those kinds of things. um, And I just wanted to be left alone. I was a bit of a nerd. Uh, If you can't tell, I'm a professor, so therefore you just have to be. I had a book. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, so I I get the middle seat, and this guy's there just just nonstop in my ear. All kinds of questions. Why would your parents send you off? What are you doing? Where are you going? And I just, I had finally had it. So I deployed the only thing I knew in my arsenal that would probably get him to be quiet. I said, you know... 
if this plane were to go down today, where would you spend eternity? <laughs> Not a good use of gospel presentation tools, but the guy did just sit back and he just flumped back and crossed his arms and that was it. Like he didn't want to talk. And so I'm like, well, okay. And I just grabbed my book and I started reading. A few minutes later, after he had collected his thoughts, he pops forward and goes, you know what I hate about you Christians? You're all pro-life and you don't care a whit about orphans. And then he crossed his arms and sat back. Now, 14, what do you do with that? How, how am I supposed to deal with this or, or whatever? I, it, just, it was outside of my category. But he, does, he did have a point, and it's a point that's stuck with me all of these years of, of asking the question, if, if we as the people of God believe that God not only created life and, and all of the life that we experience around us, that, that God shapes and forms us in our mother's womb, that God has a purpose and plan for every human on the face of this earth, that God has made humanity in the, in the image of God, our pro-life has to be more than just advocating for the unborn. It also has to be going beyond and getting engaged in the lives of those who do not have that connectivity. It has to be that next step forward. And the text of Scripture bears that out. And so if you've found your place to James chapter 1, there in verse 26 and 27, James, this apostle of God, is writing to a church He's writing to just churches in general and saying, these are the things that you need to know. It's a very practical book. There's a lot of wisdom sayings in here. And as you get to the conclusion of chapter one, he is summing up an argument where he is saying that our faith cannot be mere words. It must take action. Our faith cannot be mere words. It must take action. In fact, a living faith produces action. This is, this is what he's saying. A living faith produces action. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And let me time out just for a second here. When we think about religion, especially in our evangelical circles, we kind of have a, like a knee-jerk reaction against that, Right? don't bring me your religion, I have a relationship with Christ, right? That's kind of how we talk. We don't like to talk about religion because oftentimes that means this category, this generic thing that's kind of out there and, and maybe it has a bunch of rules or regulations, it's, but it's not relationship with Jesus Christ. So we often will not use that word to refer to ourselves. I'm not religious, right? It's just, it, doesn't, it doesn't match up, it doesn't, doesn't fit. This was also the case in the first century as this is being written. James wasn't unaware of these same kind of concepts. In fact, the first century and subsequent centuries were very religious. People worshiped the emperor. They offered sacrifices to gods. People were doing all kinds of religious things. And what James is trying to help his readers understand is that whether we like it or not, people consider us religious because we're following the one true God. And you, you, we can go ahead and understand that when we claim that we're following the one true God, that they're going to be evaluating what we do and then making judgments about that one true God. James is warning people here in verse 26 against 
hypocrisy. How can we be those who say one thing and do something that's opposite? How can we be those who proclaim Jesus, we worship Jesus here on a Sunday morning, we sing songs to Jesus, and then we walk out the door, and then we go hang out with our friends, or we go to work on Monday, or we go wherever God takes us, and from there it's like we just left our Jesus behind. And I make my financial decisions based on human wisdom, and I make my family decisions based on human wisdom, and I make all of my decisions based on human wisdom, and not as if I have a living relationship with God Almighty. And James is saying this cannot be the case. It cannot be the case that our churchianity trumps our Christianity. Okay? So as James goes through this, he's going to help us build this out. So again, look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious, thinks you're a follower of God, thinks you're someone who's following the one true God and does not bridle his tongue and deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. So one of the first outputs that we see in the text here is that if our speech does not match our actions, then friends, there's something wrong with your faith. James says it even more bluntly, you may not have a faith at all. If your speech, the things you advocate for, the things you talk about, the way that you say it, the truth or lack of truth that you're using reflects who God is. And some of us have a problem with truth. Some of us have a problem speaking truth. That should be an indicator of a heart condition. In fact, we could go back and we could look in the New Testament and notice what Jesus says in Luke 6. Jesus says, speaking to the crowds, that it is out of the heart the mouth speaks. It's out of the heart the mouth speaks. That's why James can say, if we think we're religious and we can't control this little tiny muscle in our mouth, it's intentional that he could press in and say, there might be something wrong with your faith because it may be the case that it's not real. Because if it's from the heart, the mouth speaks, and there's a disconnect here, I need to do a check. And for some of us in this room, this may be all you get out of today, is an understanding of what the text is saying about your heart. But friends, please hear me. What we advocate for matters. When people say, I'm pro-life, that should relate to action. That matters how we vote. That matters how I live. That matters how I speak that takes control of my actions. If I'm going to say one thing, it needs to match up all the way down. Now watch how this works. In Romans 10, 9, we read in the text of Scripture, the Apostle Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, what's the result? You will be saved. That's what the text of Scripture says. How can it be then if I'm professing perpetual falsehood, that same mouth that confessed Jesus is Lord, that, how, how does that work? In James 3, a few chapters later in this book, James would say, out of the same mouth comes praises and cursings and brothers that shouldn't be. You can't have the mix. It doesn't work. We need to be those who speak the truth and to live this out. We speak life 
We speak life found in Christ alone, and because of that, we advocate for life. And watch how that begins to turn from the negative to the positive here in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So we've seen what religion is not. Now we're going to see what it is. He's going to give us three categories where this works out, right? Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So if we've got category one, this negative component of following Christ in speech and being careful for about this, now we see the second category in care for widows and orphans. How are we supposed to show that we are a true follower of Jesus Christ? Caring for widows and orphans. Now earlier Brandon told you uh, I teach church history. I love church history. It's amazing. It's a great thing to be able to study, to look at how God has been consistently faithful to his people for over 2,000 years. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-blowing. Do you want to know one of the surefire ways to know you found a group of Christians throughout 2,000 years of church history? You can go through and you can watch. It happens all the time. A group of Christians gather, a new church is formed in a new community, and the first things that they kick off over and over and over again is some sort of level of caring for orphans and some sort of level of caring for those who are aged. It's just consistent all the way through 2,000 years of church history. Now, why? Because people who are followers of Jesus Christ are peoples of the book. And what do the people, what does the book say? To care for widows and orphans. And so they go, huh, this is God's plan. Smart, let's do it. And that's exactly what they do over and over again. When you go back to the Great Awakening in America, what is one of the first things that starts to happen with those who are preaching the Great Awakening is they start orphanages. Uh, some have joked, uh, historian George Marsden joked, you wanna know where the evangelicals were in the, in the planning of America? You find the orphanages, that's where the churches are. It's unbelievable, it's uncanny, this caring for widows and orphans is such a connected piece of being a follower of Jesus Christ and being a church that seeks to follow Christ. Now notice in your text in verse 27, it may use the word to care for or to visit orphans and widows. Some of you go, well, I can handle the visit, right? Just come knock on the door and then, hey, how you doing? Just checking in. All right, fine, I'm out. Uh, That's kind of how we think about visit. This word actually means to enmesh your life with someone else. It's all linked to the, uh, the ancient world's concept of hospitality. And it might be something that is relatively short in terms of a visit, but it might be something that's actually rather long. It might be a, a full season or a longer time period that you're just continuing to love and to care for that person. So when we see this to visit or to care for, it means to be prepared to be engaged in the life of that person as long as God wills. Now that changes things a little bit, right? It's not just I'm going to do something short and sweet. It's I'm saying, God, use me as your servant however you see fit. Now, when it comes to widows, and again, this is Orphan Care Sunday, so I want to make sure I get specifically to that, but the text is here as well. Let me mention, in the ancient world, widows were a category of individual that Roman society just didn't have a place for. If your husband died and then you didn't have sons, you were done. There's no social security. 
There was no way to kind of protect yourself or to keep yourself. It basically meant you were cast out from society. The church said, no, these are people that God died for, that Jesus died for them. God provided through Christ to, to, uh, for their salvation. We're going to care for them. And they cared for and honored widows. And it changed the dynamic in the ancient world. The same thing came for the sake of orphans. In the ancient world, children were a burden to society. They just were seen as a burden, a necessary evil. Yeah, you got to have offspring, you got to do whatever, but they treated life so cheaply. In the Roman Empire, they practiced abortion. In the Roman Empire, they also practiced infanticide. They did not believe that a child younger than one really had any reason to exist. So if you got tired of feeding your child in the middle of the night, it was okay to discard your child. If your child got sick and you didn't know what to do, it was okay to discard your child. They would take the children out to the outside of the gates of the city or outside the boundary of the city and literally throw them in the trash. It's horrendous to think about. But the early church consistently over and over again talk about how people in the church would go specifically to these places where these infants would be discarded and they would collect them and they would care for them and they would bring healing to them and either treat them with dignity while they died because their illness was too much or they would care for them and raise them as their own children. It was this care for widows and orphans that sociologist Rodney Stark said is one of the leading factors that allowed Christians to move from this obscure group of people following a, 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 a pastor in Israel to becoming the dominant religion in the West. Their fact that they cared for the outcasts of society, these people on the margins, meant that they transformed their culture within a space of a very few hundred years. Tertullian, who was one of the church fathers who's writing around the year 200, he's a pastor in North Africa. He's seen some of his own church members die in the arenas. But in his writing about Christianity, in his defense about Christianity, he tells us that one of the things that the people in their community can't get their heads around is why Christians care so much for widows and orphans. And he talks about how it allows them to tell the story of Jesus. Friends, the text is clear. Our church history uh, is very clear that this is one of the ways that God chooses to work when we care for widows and orphans in their affliction. Friends, God is ready to move in a powerful way. Then there's one other aspect here before we turn back to this orphan care that I do want us to, to make sure that we connect because it's in the text. It's to visit orphans and widows in their, in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world. What is James getting at? James is telling us that it is so easy for us to get sucked in to how the world thinks that we can then begin to push away from God's best. It's so easy for us to get pulled in by the siren song of the culture so that we look and sound like everybody else 
And in the process, we miss what God wants to do. And how easy could that have been in the ancient world? You care for who? Why would you do that? What's wrong with you people? Why are you giving your money in that way? What's wrong? And instead, to be able to say, this is what God has called us to do, and we're going to do it regardless. Friends, when we look at these these three aspects, our, our speech, our care for widows and orphans, and to keep ourselves pure, our personal holiness, it is a picture of us on relentless pursuit of Jesus Christ. My hope and prayer is that you understand that not only does God love you so much in Jesus Christ, but he wants you to be his ambassadors to a world that is hopeless. And they need to see the hope of Jesus Christ in tangible ways. And God has ordained it that one of the ways that we show that is through orphan care. Now, on this Orphan Care Sunday, I want us to construct a big picture. I want us to see how all of this works and, and, and put this together, draw this in a little bit, and then I want to give you four things that I think you can engage in directly in your life, in your personal ministry, in the community, and beyond. It was back in 2004 that Robert Galinas of Colorado Community Church was teaching through the book of James, and as he taught this passage, God broke him. He said, I don't know that I've seen this in a church. I don't, I don't, I don't know that I've seen my people doing this. It, I got to find some data out. So Robert starts doing some digging around, and he finds out that in Colorado, there were 800 kids whose parental rights had been terminated in Colorado. 800 kids. There were a lot more in foster care, but the main goal of foster care typically is to reunite the God-ordained family unit, right? That's the, the point, is reunification whenever possible. And we should embrace that and understand that. But there were 800 kids whose parental rights, for whatever reason, had been terminated, and there was nowhere for them to go. And Robert goes... I think we can do something about that. So he began to pray and talk with his leaders and they began to figure out what can we do. And they created a campaign within their church to change that particular issue. Then they started talking with some other pastors and they also came alongside them. Within the space of just three years, they reduced that number from 800 to 200 by churches getting intentional about caring for orphans. Now, how did they do that? Well, they sacrificed. A ton of people in their church went through training for foster care and adoption. They all started rolling up their sleeves and getting dirty. Two families saw the need for a large group of kids that, uh, that were sibling set that they couldn't quite figure out how to get them into just one family. So these families sold their properties bought two adjoining houses in a cul-de-sac, and then one family took half, and the other family took the other half of the kids and brought them into their home so that they could still have interaction with their biological siblings, but also remain part of their families. 
This is radical thinking and radical action on the part of a church, but it made a huge difference. Robert talks about how many social workers came to faith in Jesus Christ because these social workers who are oftentimes overworked and overwhelmed couldn't believe that these churches were actually putting their money where their mouth was and they were stepping up and actually caring for kids. And it began to change an entire environment within the state of Colorado. Now globally, the idea of orphan care is is challenging because globally it's an overwhelming picture. In 2020, UNICEF put out the number yet again of around 153 million orphans. 153 million with around 5,700 being orphaned daily. Now, some people push back on their numbers, just to be fair and honest, and say, well, the the terms are a little loose, and so they postulate some other kinds of things. Even if we took just a quarter of that number, let's say that they're way overinflating them, which I don't know that they really are, but let's just reduce it even to just a quarter of that number. It's still 38 million kids. Now, statistically, we're told that the number of evangelical Christians is around 619 million. If we just took off kind of those maybe who are 60 and above and, and those who are 20 and below, and then we started talking about family units and how that works, some calculations put it at around 120 million families available evangelical families available to care for orphans, then why on earth are there 38 million children still without a family? You catch the math there? But sometimes when we think about the big picture, we can throw our hands up and go, what a... How can I even intersect? And, you know, and countries are closed and there's, there's not ways. And, and friends, believe me, when we start talking about international adoption, it is not for the faint of heart. The cost, the expense, the changing borders, the rules, the regulations, it is absolutely overwhelming. And I know in your own church that you've had families pursue that and it is hard. It is hard work. So let me take out of the realm of that and let's move it more local then. Surely it's easier for us to make a difference locally, just like they did in Colorado. Maybe we could do that in Missouri. Did you know that there are 19,400 children in the care of Missouri's children's division right now? 19,400. Now, most of those children, again, are in a foster care placement that is designed for reunification, right? Mom and dad messed up some way, somehow. Mom and dad are getting the help that they need to be able to get back on their feet so that the children can be reunited, hopefully. And again, we want to embrace that because God has ordained the family, right? The family is God's design. So we want to embrace that and encourage that wherever we can. But that means when we engage in this, that means foster care becomes an important part of this picture of caring for orphans. Because we may need to be able to take in a child into our home for three months, for six months, for a year, maybe even a two, while we're trying to help mom or dad get back on their feet and ready to go. We're just loving them during the season that they're in. The average age of a child in foster care is eight. Oftentimes we kind of think of 
babies or we think of teens, the average age is eight. Children over the age of nine who do not find a placement and are not reunified with their family are 50% less likely to be adopted. In fact, last year, 500, 500 kids aged out of the foster care system with no one. Five, <laughs> sorry, I got choked up just a little bit. 500. These are kids like my daughter, who's 17. She's not ready. And even if she was ready and she launches and she goes, think of how many instances in your 18 to 21 framework that you messed up, that you blew it, and mom and dad were there to help get you back on your feet and ready to go. Or grandma and grandpa, or an aunt or an uncle. These kids have no one. Statistically, you want to know where 80% of those 500 kids are going to end up? In jail. In jail, because there's no one. Where are we, church? This is an unbelievable circumstance that we can make a difference in. This is just a fascinating thing when we start looking at this and see this huge need of how this works out. And as the doors close internationally for us to be able to reach out into the real need there, the need in America has never been greater. It just continues to increase over and over and over again. It's an exponential increase every year. So what are we supposed to do? Give me brass tacks, right? Tell me what I need to do and, and I'll sign up. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. I'm going to give you four aspects that I think you need to think about and pray about. In fact, in just a minute when it's time for us to pray, I'm going to ask for you to pray and possibly commit to one of these. And so the number one thing that I would ask you to pray about is to jump in personally. To jump in personally. To, to literally say, all right, I hear, I get it, I see the text. God's pushing us. We're going to jump in personally. We're going to make a difference in the lives of these kids. There are three levels to this that I need you to know about. Adoption is an obvious one, right? We, we've thought about this uh, as a culture, and I think as our churches, we're doing so much better about this, uh, about adopting and, and adopting kids. It's not easy, and I'm not talking about the process. That's not easy either. I'm talking about the fact of taking a child who has unbelievable baggage, many of whom have seen things that would make you crawl in a corner and cry as an adult. And that's what they know at eight. That's what they know at 10. I meant sexual abuse, emotional abuse, hurt, pain. They don't know love. And they need you. And they need you as a church to come beside them. And it will be harder than anything that you have ever done. It is not a romantic thing where it's all yay and fantastic and great. It is the hardest thing you will ever do. Walking with this child through the hurts and pains that they've experienced. But God is calling some of you to do it. And you've been sitting on the sidelines. You know, let's wait till the finances are right. Let's wait until this happens. Let's wait until that happens. And God's saying, now. Now is the time. Now is the time to engage. Adoption means that they become your kids. 
my family will be here in the last service. And I have four children. I have a senior who just graduated. I have a junior. I have a sophomore and an eighth grader. Our house is like acts and hormones and just all kinds of crazy, right? It's awesome. We, we love it. It's, it. it's hard. My children look nothing like my wife and I. We're white. They're black. It's pretty obvious that our, our family has gone through adoption. But when you look at their birth certificate, it has my name and my wife's name as their parents. Their legal identity changed because of adoption. They're ours. They're my kids. They're mine. I love them to pieces. All of the issues that they have as well as all of the joys that they bring. That's what adoption does. And God uses that in a powerful way in our life to make a difference. Another aspect of this jumping in personally, friends, is just foster care. Like I mentioned before, that's that short-term to short-to-long-term care for a child in your home. And believe me, it takes a special kind of family to be able to bring a child into your home and to see it as a calling to love them for a season and then be able to release them. Sometimes releasing them back to what you know is going to continue to be a hard circumstance, but you trust God's sovereignty enough to love them and to care for them in such an amazing way so that they can see Jesus, whether it's a week with your family or whether it's a year or two years, that you love and care for them, always with an open hand, knowing that this is just simply a season that God has for you and your family. It sometimes makes sure that you know like your own family circumstances and is this the right thing for us and where our kids are and other kinds of things. But friends, it's, it's a need. It's an overwhelming need, especially in Missouri. They don't have enough foster families. There's, there's nowhere for these kids to go and they end up in, in group homes, which aren't always, always the best circumstance in Missouri. And so friends, I, I'm telling you, there is such an overwhelming need for foster care families. And I would encourage you to pursue that. And another aspect of this idea of jumping in with both feet is to become certified to be a respite caregiver. A respite caregiver. This is an underutilized ministry in churches that it's unbelievable. And this is perfect, especially if you're like a retiree or uh, maybe getting closer to like your kids are gone, but you're not ready to have like other kids running through your house or whatever. Respite care means that you're certified by the state of Missouri to care appropriately for kids so that moms and dads of foster kids can go on a date. You may not know this, but in in many cases, foster care families can't just let their kids be babysat by anyone or just leave them. Depending on the, the, the child and the level of placement, they need specially trained people certified by the state to say you can leave them. Or if mom and dad need to get away for a weekend or to go care for an aging parent, or to do any of that. They have to have someone who's specially trained to be able to do that. And it's an underutilized ministry that the church can have to care for orphans, to visit orphans. And some of you could step up in that way. Regardless, it takes all of us as a church. Kids coming from hard places need people like you, like LifePoint, to care for them. They don't always look or act like the kids that have always grown up in church quite frequently. They're they're coming from these hard places and, and it doesn't always feel the same as some of our other kids, but they need your love and your grace and your care as you keep pointing them over and over and over to Jesus. 
So if the first thing is to jump in with both feet, and I would pray that God would call some of you this morning to do that. Second of all, I would ask that some of you pray about giving resources specifically. For families called to foster or adopt, the fiscal cost is real. The fiscal cost is real. Just ask anyone in your church who's adopted internationally or domestically. There is unbelievable cost associated. And oftentimes families don't have the means to cover that. And they will sacrifice to follow God's command. But they need help fiscally. That may be exactly the place where you are. Where you say, you know what? God's blessed me with this. Or my business has done unbelievable well. Or whatever's going on. And you just know, you know what? I need to be able to get involved, and this is how I'm going to do it. Even in our state, the Missouri Baptist Children's Home relies on the generosity of churches just like LifePoint, who already gives in that direction, but also individuals to give to be able to meet the needs of the children that are in their group home settings or the foster care families that they support. We can give the resources that God has blessed us with to help others be able to serve because maybe for some reason we cannot. Third, I would challenge you to serve families in your community. And what do I mean by this? One of the ways that we can help this is by getting ahead of it. That means that we may need to be more focused as a church going into some of the neighborhoods that we're uncomfortable with in our, in our area. Maybe it's the trailer park over there or it's that neighborhood that no one goes to and being intentionally getting involved in the life of the kids and the moms and dads over there to help them be better moms and dads, to help them with the issues that they're experiencing, to help those kids know Jesus so that they can point their parents possibly to Christ. This is a full-orbed approach. It's not just waiting on the defense for someone to fall into foster care. Let's get engaged on the front side and help moms and dads learn to be better moms and dads and help people with addiction and help people with issues that begin to separate families. This is a calling of our churches to point people to Jesus by holding forth God's ideal of the family. And then fourth, Friends, we need to be praying. And I would challenge you to add this to your prayer list. Now here's the danger. The danger is that we can add this to our list and it can just be pray for orphans and it's amorphous and it's this big cloud and I just don't know what it is and it's just there and I'm just gonna kind of offer up a prayer and that's it. Get more detailed. Get more detailed. The Missouri Baptist Children's Home can help you with that in terms of like even names. You can go on Missouri's Department of Children and Family Services and you can look at pictures of kids <laughs> who want a home and you can just pray for them by name. They may not be for you to be matched with, but you can just pray for them by name. Just say, God, help that kid find a home. And help me continue to be sensitive to your calling on this. And here's the thing. Adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. No wonder the Apostle Paul takes in the book of Romans and, and uses this as an analogy to show us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That he takes us from being separated from him and brings us into family relationship through adoption. In Romans 8, as Paul talks about this, what a picture. And so how much more important is it for us as believers to get engaged in the 
actual physical process of adoption, despite the difficulties, despite the challenges, God tells us that this is how we are supposed to be. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Life point, let's be a church that helps kids know the hope of the gospel and to show the outside world the truth of the gospel as we are those who engage children in the rough places and to point them to Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? As we're praying and your head is bowed, there's going to be bands coming back up. What could God be laying on your heart today? What could God be calling you to do today? I've given you four options that I think the text allows for us to consider. I think there are some of you in this room, I believe that there are some of you in this room that you've been toying along the sidelines of maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't adopt, foster, adopt, foster. Maybe we could, maybe we couldn't. And you've just been toying. And God is calling you this morning to jump in. To jump in. To get engaged. To wait. Not another moment. Even if it means that you're going to have to go through the process of classes and learning and taking, which is all part of it. But you're going to do whatever it takes to get engaged. So friends, maybe that's you this morning. And would you just surrender that calling to the Lord? God, wherever you would take me, however you would use me in this way, I'm ready to jump in. For some of you, again, that second option was to give of your resources. You could talk with Pastor Lane and you could start developing a God-given strategy to fund, to equip, to help others be able to live out their calling to care for others. Some of you, the way that you need to start engaging in this is that third option. You need to be engaged in the children's ministry. You need to be working in the youth ministry. You need to be doing whatever you can to help families, maybe in marital counseling or other kinds of things so that you can serve families and maybe even stem the tide of the children that are going into the Missouri social system. And some of you, the commitments you need to make this morning is that you're going to pray. Can you imagine, church, what it would be like for an entire church to pray for an entire month that God would care for the orphan? 